What's your story? Whether you're a client or an independent financial advisor, we know you face many important decisions that can affect your and your clients' long-term financial success. Welcome to the WIN Podcast. What's important now with Corey Hymanson, accredited investment fiduciary and president of Hymanson Wealth Advisors. In this podcast, Corey helps you identify your goals and objectives through financial education and comprehensive planning while inspiring you to make better behavioral decisions in your personal finance. With a twist on pop culture and current events, join us as we explore growth and protection strategies for individuals, advisors, and their businesses. Come and discover what's important to you now. Welcome to the Win Podcast with Corey Hymanson, or as I like to call him, your man who's the guy to what's important now. Hey, Corey, how are you? <laughs> I didn't even know where that intro was going, but I'm feeling good about it. Hey, I, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy. You're that guy. You can't you can't see me right now if you're out there in the listening audience, but I'm, I'm pointing to myself with two thumbs. It's like, I'm that guy. Yeah. Uh, you are that guy, man. How, how are you? I haven't <laughs> talked to you in a while. Good. Yeah, boy, we had a little little stretch here between recording sessions, so it's been a while, but hopefully we're back and can bring a, bring an A game here today. Well, it should be really interesting because I, I understand that you're going to be a tennis coach today. Yeah, why wouldn't I, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. that's kind of my famous Tennis coaching on podcasting. There back. you yeah. go, boys and girls. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, as we release this thing, it's going to be uh, the, the dead of February in, in the Midwest where I'm sitting. And, you know, you're not in the warmest climate necessarily either. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> but I thought, why wouldn't we, you know, maybe talk about tennis when there's, you know, not inches, but feet of snow Ice across a large part snow, of uh, yeah. North America. <laughs> so, so yeah, I threw the title out. We'd call this the Winter Tennis Breakdown. And we'll see what happens. That sounds good to me. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start this by asking you, Corey, what does tennis have to do with finance? Oh, it's supposed to be tied to finance. <laughs> well, you know, allegedly, Corey Holmes and Wealth yeah. Diamonds and Wealth Advisors, well, you know that. Yeah. I mean, people that are tuning in probably want a little bit of finance on, on the plate here today, I suppose. So my thought is, and I don't, the, the, the phrase hit me as I was driving not that long ago, and, and uh -huh. it's unforced errors. You know, I, I'm thinking, I watch a lot of sports, but, but I think tennis as far as I know, is the only one that has a statistic for unforced errors. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I don't I don't watch enough baseball, which is obsessed with statistics, uh, to know whether there is a category called unforced errors. But I did play tennis some when I was younger and when I was a kid, and I am well familiar with the category of unforced errors. <laughs> Like you're an expert? <laughs> yeah, like, like I'm an expert, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I laughed. You know, if you think about this, I, you know, I think the tennis world defines it as essentially it's a mistake you made kind of on your own. Right. It's now, your mistake. Okay. Like uh, a bad serve or, ref or, like, yeah. or when, you return, when you return a volley and you hit it into the net, right? Yeah. And so I think tennis also says like there's – kind of the a 180 of this is the forced error so so if you hit the ball at me and you hit a great shot and then i make a mistake they say well that, that was forced on me you know 
But yeah, if you know, I drop think, a 120 mile per hour <laughs> serve over on you and you, you, you miss it, that's a forced error, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, but I mean, even if you hit that thing only 100 miles an hour and it's just an average shot and I skank it off the side of my racket, it seems like all of these are kind of forced errors if you ask me. <laughs> you know what I mean? This isn't an easy sport. <laughs> I don't know. Just saying. Just no, saying. no, but there is there uh, there is a certain clarity to the idea of an unforced error. It's your mistake. It's not something your opponent did. It is something that you did that resulted in you know either a loss of a point or you know or some kind of bad bad basically consequence on the court. Yeah, and so I started reading into this a little bit because it's one of them things I hadn't thought about in the first. 50 some years of my life and now it's top of brain top of mind you know <laughs> but you know even even the, the top men's player in the in the world Jokovic um that that might that almost sounded like the basketball player from Denver Novak Djokovic there yeah, you go the Joker uh, is he's called yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I looked at this and so even when he wins a, a a major tournament you know there are potentially still hundreds or a hundred or more unforced errors on, on his stat line. Yeah. It's kind of mm -hmm. wild if you think about it. Well, you know, it, it's a reminder actually that even the very, very best of tennis players can make unforced errors. Yeah. And so I think that's the tie in even to the investing world or the finance world. I mean, unforced errors, human emotion, just sometimes stuff doesn't go the right way. You know, that's part of, that's part of life basically yeah. well true true so as i was putting this together i also had my first flashback of exposure to tennis you want to hear that story yeah so growing up in my my small little town we had we had two tennis courts uh not high-end quality <laughs> this is i hear you, you know, uh -huh. um, I, not a lot of people played tennis, but I, I remember I was I was a young boy, probably lower elementary school, and, and I think my dad, and I can't remember if it was just a men's tournament on a Saturday or if it was a couples or, you know, what this was, but he, I remember him saying to me, yeah, they're looking for ball boys at the, at the tennis tournament today. Well, I was like, well, that sounds fun. I've seen it on TV. You know, they run across the court. That looks really, really fun. Yeah. So I go there, you know, get on one knee, like a track starting position, just like they do on TV. And I ran across, got about three balls in a row after they got hit in the net. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> I'm going to be here all damn day and I'm not getting paid. I and mean, then this is no good. So I don't think I played tennis for like 30 years. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, it's funny. You, you were introduced to it by your dad as it, as it were. I was introduced to it by my dad as well, because my dad used to play on Saturday mornings. In, and I, too, grew up in a small town in Texas. Uh, and, and he would go with these three other men, and they would play doubles. And they would get together at like 6 o'clock, 6.30 on Saturday morning, because there weren't a lot of courts. And he used the, they went and played on courts that were actually at a little small liberal arts college in town, Austin College. And I would go along with him and watch them play. And fortunately, I didn't have your same experience. I was not a ball boy. And I kind of got into this idea of this kind of looks like fun and something maybe I could do, which is how I got into playing. <laughs> do you still play today? I do not. I do not. It, um, because, 
I think in all of the area I live in right now, there are four tennis courts that I can think about <laughs> that I can that I can, that I can call, recall to mind off in. Not a lot of tennis courts. And a lot of the tennis courts have, as you know, have been uh, converted into pickleball courts. Pickleball's huge, yeah. at least in this part of the country. I, I just talked to a client that was traveling uh uh, this winter up to the Minneapolis area and, and there's, and I suppose this is in a lot of larger cities too. You know, they're essentially large uh, bars, restaurants tied into pickleball. So oh, essentially wow. you can, you know, make a reservation, go eat and drink, be merry. And it, you know, it turns into like a half a day event, Whoa! but you got to call in like weeks in advance to even get a, <laughs> going to say a tea time. It's not a tea time. It's a whatever. I don't know what it would be called. Serve time? I don't know. But but that's part of our our society of advancement of of making things easier, maybe? Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily – because I I think it's pretty safe to say pickleball is an easier game to play than tennis. It's a much easier game to play. And a lot less physical. You don't have to cover as much ground. No. No, you, the biggest, the biggest, the, the biggest, the biggest asset like to steps. that is at least to get you out on a court and get you moving around, right? That, oh, that's absolutely. the logic. Absolutely. So I'm from the Midwest. Maybe tennis isn't real hot and popular here all the time, but you know, from somebody like you on the East Coast, uh, you ever go to the U.S. Open of tennis? I have never been to the U.S. Open, even though I lived at one point like maybe eight miles from the stadium. But I had a friend of mine who was stationed overseas, and his return home every year included a trip to the U.S. Open. Interesting. He was a huge U.S. Open fan, yeah. I mean, I I, I sort of pay attention to tennis, just whoever wins the majors, you know, around the world. But the U.S. Open is one that I actually enjoy and I watch on TV. And I think a lot of it's just because it's a lot of the better matches toward the end of the tournament are in prime time at night and the yep. it's New York city and the crowd's a little rowdy and you know, they're all drinking these honey deuce drinks. <laughs> honey deuce. I learned about that this year watching, watching they they said that, you know, like the, the Kentucky Derby, I think has its own drink of choice. It's, it's the mint julep or something right. like that. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I, boy, it's amazing. The, the people ask me of the books I read and I don't really read books, but I read a lot of, random interesting factual stuff like this yeah oh god yes yeah the uh the honey deuce was created by the people that uh make gray goose vodka because they were trying to find a way to sell more vodka <laughs> <laughs> so essentially it's uh to me it sounds like it's a raspberry lemonade uh, with vodka in it but ah. anyway there you go there's your fun fact of the day there you are ladies and gentlemen <laughs> I, I must confess, I don't know, well, I did not know what a honey deuce was until now. And, and if you really want to get uh, cute, I, I think they also involve uh, a scoop or a melon baller to put uh, chunks of, of fruit in these things that look like tennis balls. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're off the path. Okay. Uh, That's, that, that feels like an unforced error. Unforced podcasting error. <laughs> <laughs> one. I have one now. Okay. You know, and so, yeah, let's tie it to finance. You know, I mean, there's probably, in my opinion, let's say five types of unforced errors. And this can be tennis. This can be uh, finance. But uh, the first, I think, is decision-making. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And basically decision-making ties to, in my opinion, you know, maybe it's a lapse of concentration. Maybe it's just flat out poor judgment, you know, and, and that's easy to do for people when they, when it comes to their money, well, they might have emotions, they might have a cognitive bias or there might be other things going on in their brain that just leads them to do the wrong thing or make a wrong decision at, at the wrong time. And I think the first step to solve an unforced errors is admitting that they're out there. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I know you probably will get to this, but that's the whole reason that the category of unforced errors is kept to be serious. Because when you evaluate your game, if you're a professional, if you're like Djokovic, you're going to look down and say, where, where did, where was I at fault? Cause I can fix that. Oh, totally. You know, you want to even tie this into, let's say golf. I mean, you could watch a professional golf tournament and how many guys or gals are within five strokes of winning over four days of golf. You know what I mean? It doesn't take very many small lapses in judgment or or an unforced error on a three-footer that has a huge consequence. True. You know? And, And so I'm not telling clients to strive for perfection. It's progress. It's keeping your head, keeping a cool head, making good decisions, and generally hard work, good decisions over time are going to outweigh the bad decisions, and, and you still get a more favorable outcome than if you really drop the ball consistently and frequently. You know, and, and a lot of this is psychological. You know, we can say that in tennis, life, golf. Oh, gosh. You know, the, <laughs> the space between your ears, man, it's got to be dialed in. Well, between emotions and psychology, I think you pretty much covered the world of of money (laughs) right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And man, I mean, we can even, we're going in a lot of tangents or maybe I am, you know, but it's a political year too, you know, so you're, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money involved in politics, whether that's in office, trying to get in office. <laughs> trying to Laws. stay in office. Yes, I mean, we can go on and on, but yeah, we probably don't want to go there. But I mean, the key part, and I'm really hammering the drum on this, is don't make irrational decisions very often. You know, try to think things through. Take the time it, it requires, you know. And sometimes the clients I, I respect even the most are the ones that maybe I give them or my team gives them what we think is a great idea just a rock solid rock star type idea. And they might say, you know, we want to go home and think about it by all means. I'll pat them on the back and say, that's a great idea. And you know, 99 out of a hundred times they come back and say, that's a great idea. We should do that. But you, yeah. you want it to be on your feel good terms, basically. Well, we do, we, all of us make mistakes, you know, especially in the areas of investing. And a lot of it does come down to emotion and psychology. And I, and I'm sure you've, 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 you know, got a lot of stories relating to clients in, in this exact way. What do you do or how do you help educate or guide your clients uh, to make better decisions, I guess? Well, and a lot of times it's just a question they've never had before. You know, I'll look them in the eye and if their thought process isn't tracking maybe what I'm what I'm going for or what we're we're trying to explain, I'll say, you know, tell me your first good story about money in life. 
and they'll come up with something. And then I'll say, tell me your, your worst life story about money. And if you get those two answers from somebody, it, it just turns the page. It just shows you why they think the way they think today. Not just because I'm a finance guy, but if, if you get somebody's personal story that has touched them and stuck in their brain for years, if not decades, related to money, it's probably because they lost money. They either yeah. missed out on an opportunity or they just flat out lost money on something. And, and that leaves a scar, you know, and that's okay. But just let's learn from those, those stories, learn from those scars and don't make the same damn mistake again, you know? And, and that kind of ties into my third point here of, of these unforced errors. And that's, that's learning. It's, it's learning and it's improving, you yeah. know, we're going to make mistakes, but damn it. If you make a mistake, let's reflect on what went wrong. What could we have controlled to get a better outcome than we got? And I bet that's something the best tennis players do too. Like you said, even if they win, they'd probably go back, watch the tape and look through things and be like, yeah, there was a point. There was seven points or whatever it is that I could have fixed. I could have altered yes. and maybe just maybe got a better outcome once, maybe five times. You know what I mean? Progress is progress. If you can solve and fix little things that were still under your control for next time, man, that's a win. Yeah, no. No, that is the secret to getting better, isn't it? I mean, the secret to getting better, whether it be in tennis, golf, or just life, is, you know, looking at, you know, evaluating what what happened there. what, what and, and then learning from that moment or that situation or that mistake. Oh, how many marriages do you think could be improved or saved from that exact point you just made? A lot. A Communication. Lot. You know, a lot, of, a lot of fighting, they say, comes from, from money situations, but it doesn't matter what it is. Look back, see if you can fix it, improve yourself, improve somebody else. I mean, man, I should get a therapy degree. There you go. <laughs> no, you know. Well, I think probably, I, honestly, I think probably a lot of financial advisors at one point in their life think, oh, I should probably get it. I probably already have a therapy degree right well, here good somewhere. Ones. Yeah. No, the, I think that you're spot on. The, the good ones, the successful, the best deliverers of value in our industry are those that sit in my seat and, and, and can meet with people at their level yeah. and, and understand, yes, this is emotional and it hurts sometimes, but you know, let's, let's get through this together. And that's, boy, we've covered a lot of ground, went in a lot of different directions, but the, the last two points I'll make here is a lot of times people don't have the proper uh, perception of risk. In what way? How do you mean? Um, you know, meaning that I, I think they underestimate risk of certain things, meaning like an investment, for example, you right. know, every, everybody wants the years where you make lots of money, lots of money, but, but they have to experience a down year where you, you get kicked in the tail end on paper, at least. Yeah. And, and you then are your, your clock is reset, so to speak, your expectation clocks reset that you realize, oh, maybe that was a little riskier than I wanted to be. You know, and so our office scores everybody's everything they have on every holding they have. We score it every day. So we know most likely the expectations looking forward six months with a 95% probability of outcomes. So we can show people like, hey, you want to be in the XYZ uh, super aggressive <laughs> position? 
it might be this on the upside, but it might be this on the downside. And boy, you know, that'll reset somebody's eyes in a hurry. They say, yeah. well, geez, I, uh, I want to make 20%, but I sure as hell don't want to go down 19. Well, that's your range of outcomes, <laughs> sir or ma'am, you know? And so I, I think you have to understand, and you know, doctors, surgeons, I think they do a good job of this. You know, they will spell out the risks pretty clearly to somebody sure before will. something yeah. major um, is going to go into play. And, and once you have an understanding of that, you might not like the risk you're facing, but if you have an understanding of what it is, it makes you willing to accept it or maybe to not accept it and yeah. look for a different route. And, and I think that is super important, you know, to try and get optimal outcomes. You, number one, you have to understand what you're up against and you cannot underestimate risk. You must know what you're up against. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I spent many years as a business and financial reporter. And to this point, I was always um, not shocked, but I was always kind of amazed at people who did not understand risk associated with certain positions or strategies. For example, like short selling a stock or, or leveraging an option. You know, because the, 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 it, it's sold to you online. It's like, these are really simple, easy things to do. This is okay. This is fine. And look what you can do. You can you can get 20% in an afternoon. And, of course, nobody who's selling this, the, those strategies emphasizes or tells you you could also lose 50 or 60% in the process. <laughs> this is one of my simple pleasures in life. If, if somebody's in our office and they just casually mention that they have an online trading account uh -huh. they day trade a little bit <laughs> you know I'll, I'll say to them some of the terms you just used i'll be like oh are you trading options you know you're long you're short you're naked you know i mean trading on margin you know i can start laying out terms to them and they have no idea what i'm talking about none none and 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 they kind of get that glazed over look and i'm like but i'm sure you're just doing fine so i'd go ahead and trade there too if i were you <laughs> you know but it again it it's it's setting the expectation that there's things you can do in life, but you you probably should understand the risks, you know? Yep. But um, I would also hazard a guess that, that people that try to do that sort of stuff on their own, if they're, if they're not playing in their proper risk tolerance category, they probably don't do it for 10 years or for 50 years. It's probably a year or two, and then they figure out that, boy, that went south. I'm just sick of this and done. Right. You know, and boy, I mean, we can tie this back to the the housing and, you know, in the financial crisis of of many years ago and, and like the big short movie and so forth. It's like so many people didn't understand the risk of mortgage-backed securities or derivatives right. related to housing. And, you know, it's really fascinating. But if you look at it, you know, under a microscope, it's like that stuff was just destined to to blow up and and it's amazing that the big Wall Street firms didn't see that. But the reason they didn't see that is because they were getting paid. They were getting paid to trade that stuff. And so it's like a game of musical chairs. And if you're just running the music, you think it's all good and good. But pretty soon, if you're in the game and there's no chairs left, it gets real. Mm -hmm. And by real, I mean people lose money. You can look at Enron. You know, I mean, that's a name from years ago, too, and might have been from your reporting past. I mean... Their books and the things they were doing offshore, you know, 
selling barges and container ships and lacing them back. I mean, it was so complicated. The analysts had no clue. They had no clue what kind of shell game was going on there. And eventually it comes to light and the people that lose are mom and pop people. A lot of them that worked for pipelines, pipeline companies that got eventually sold out to Enron, the parent company. And, you know, they lost 401ks and they lost lots of assets. They lost lots and lots of money, man. It was a, it was a, you know, the, on the human side of finance, that was really just depressing. It was so horrible because, yeah, there were a lot of pensions and there were a lot of retirement funds and monies invested, you know, in the, in that company. And, um, yeah, a little confession on my part. You know, I, I interviewed uh, the CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, at one point when Enron was flying high. And it never occurred to me to think, this seems this seems too good to be true. <laughs> yep. And we know what happens when things seem to be too good to be true, don't oh, we, Corey? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and I think back to that, that same time period, too. You know, I've, I was getting most of my financial news from the Wall Street Journal when it got delivered every day at that time. Right. And, you know, Enron was like the seventh largest company in the S&P 500 or something like that. And I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, and this is when things still flying high for Enron, mm -hmm. and, and skilling was quoted, you know, during a, a quarterly conference call and he basically swore at, at somebody from a reporter that asked a question that he didn't like. Yeah. And I thought, boy, that's odd. You know, why would he just lose his cool and really rip that guy over what seemed like a reasonable question? Well, you know what? You fast forward like a year and all that stuff hit the fan. You know what I mean? That yes, was, I do. That was, the yes, tell. I do. That was the tell of all tells when he, completely snapped in a conference call when when those ceo type people and cfo people are supposed to be on top of their game and calm cool and collected he showed his hand and in that i don't know if i'd call it a regret but looking back in time if i'd have really thought through that more and know what i know today i'd have been like boy everybody in the world should get rid of their enron stock yeah today. well no i it, from my own personal experience i totally understand that yes yeah and, and all of this, you know, where we're going ties into my last point here. That worked out well. Overconfidence. You know what I mean? When stuff is going good, whether you're trading on your own or whether you're trading through a good advisor and everything's just roses and it's working, it's easy to get overconfident. It's easy to get uh, your allocations out of whack, you know, get too aggressive. And just like the sun comes up, there's days of reckoning in markets and, and there's going to be years absolutely when the markets go down. There's going to be recessions. There's going to be storms. But you know what? There's going to be good days too. True. And the good days tend to make you think, hey, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my famous story. Like if I'm walking to work every day and I find a dollar on the ground seven out of ten days, I'm not going to try and pick which seven out of 10 days I walk to work. I'm going to walk to work every one of them damn 10 days. And, you know, three days I'm going to be disappointed. But you know what? Markets go up 70% of the time historically, too. Yeah, that's great. Good point. Good point. So how do you help them assess the risk? I mean, I, you know, I would imagine for someone like yourself, a financial advisor, it's easy to talk to somebody when they've, you know, had a little wake-up call. But when somebody is doing well, 
and I don't mean I mean I don't mean okay. I mean doing exceptionally well, getting earning double digit returns. And how do you talk to those people and raise the idea of are you do you understand your risk and 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 dare dare you broach the topic of overconfidence? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in in the first. 20 years of my career, you know, we would have clients come in and call them review meetings. You know, let's review things. Let's right. look backwards, you know, and, and now we call them progress meetings. And so what does that mean? It means, am I making progress in the right categories? Looking backwards, you know, yeah, I get it. We got to do that a little bit. But number one, do we have things dialed in to give you and your family the cash flow you need every month? A number one. That's the most mm -hmm. important thing. I don't care if you're a billionaire or you make 20 grand a year. That's the thing you dial in first, you know? Yeah. Um, and so once we get that, then we're, then we think about, you know, how about, how about being smart from a tax standpoint? You know, that's something we can control. So both of these things I just explained, you know, if you have income and we did this thing right with the investments, we should be able to get the cash flow somewhere where we want it to be, unless somebody's goals are crazy on what they spend. But focusing on things we can control you know let's let's talk about that yeah we're knocking it out of the park this is awesome but you know what it could get stormy you know we're reading research we we see interest rates going up that causes problems uh, in the bond market you know we, we try to lay out outcomes based on history and we're not here to be salespeople and just promise all the pleasantries that that we want to promise everybody because we know that there's days that this stuff doesn't work temporarily for a while <laughs> you know and so hey let's manage taxes let's make sure your cash flow is right and then we can weather these volatility storms because they don't matter you know what i mean if we've got cash flow dialed in we're taking care of withdrawals keeping the irs happy we're doing all these things that we're supposed to do the volatility isn't that important you know what i mean turbulence on an airplane not that big a deal if the plane still lands yeah that's a big if in that case, though, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, but it, it's it's commuting to work too. You know, if you're taking a car, you're taking a oh, train, I know. Or bus, I whatever you're right. it is. There's days where that commute's going to suck. You yes. know, maybe you got an extra car in front of you driving slow. Maybe the train's late. I don't know. You know, I mean, you deal with what you deal with, but you keep looking forward. And sometimes yeah. that means conversations with family and friends that that aren't about fun topics because we're all on the same path here. You know, there's, uh, there's a limited timeline for everybody. So you got to plan for that and talk about that too, even if it's not a fun thing to, to, to dive into. True. So are we going to wrap this one up? I'm done. You're done. <laughs> Corey's done, ladies and gentlemen. No, I, you know, I, I, I think the, the real takeaway here is, you know, learn from your mistakes. Don't be afraid to talk about them. You know what I mean? And, and, and emphasize the, or maybe I need to emphasize the need for people to be aware of things and to reflect on things. And, and Hey, let's all just be out there to try and continuously improve. And then we're going to get those better outcomes that we deserve. That sounds like a great summary. That's terrific. As always, Corey, our conversations are, a little all over the place, but always really interesting. And uh, there's a lot of golden advice in there, if you will. No, no pun intended. There you go. 
<laughs> Thanks, Corey. Absolutely. Thank you very thank much. You. And listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm sure you found this interesting. I, I, I know you found it useful. If you are not a subscriber already, this is easy. <laughs> this part's simple. Hit subscribe. Hit the button. That's all. Then you don't have to remember where you heard Corey or how often Corey comes out with a podcast. It will be delivered to your listening device. It'll be there. It'll appear. And then you can listen and you'll never miss another episode. Well, I would also ask that, you know, humbly, if you uh, like the podcast, rate it, share it with others, get the word out about Corey and what he's talking about here and uh, be much appreciated. On behalf of Corey Hymanson and everybody that he works with, I'm Bill Tucker, urging you to remember to live your best life today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Win Podcast. What's important now? The show that helps you achieve your financial dreams. To ask questions about topics covered during the show or get a copy of Stop Doing Dumb Things With Your Money by Corey Hymanson, visit www.hymansonwealth.com or give us a call at 712-472-3867. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Securities offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Hymanson Wealth Advisors and Securities America are separate entities.